Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest on West Coast Live uh, teaches writing at Columbia University, but she's also the author of Tea and A Seahorse Year and the winner of a Lambda Literary Award, was a Stegner Fellow at Stanford in the field of fiction for two years, 95 to 97, and her new novel is called The Sky Below, the story of Gabriel and his life from the time that uh, his great sad brown bear of a father leaves the family to, uh, to make his own way into a kind of a metamorphosis of his own. Uh, will you please welcome Stacy DeRosmo to West Coast Live. Hi, hi, hi. So I, I was wondering uh, about your uh, thoughts about Bob Dylan. I mean, you've got an interesting, uh, interesting description of him here as sounding kind of like a troll under a bridge or something. I mean, it's, uh, well, Bob Dylan in the book. Oh, here it is. Can I read this? Sure. I thought Bob Dylan. You have a character say this. Yeah. Uh, the mother is constantly playing Bob Dylan records after the father leaves. I thought yeah. Bob Dylan sounded like a sarcastic tree stump <laughs> or some kind of enchanted troll lurking under a bridge. He haunted our house day and night with endless sorrows. <laughs> right. Well, I, I actually am a huge fan of Bob Dylan's. And, um, and that's the character talking about his mother who's sort of playing Dylan obsessively after the dad leaves. Um, but a talking tree stump. A talking tree stump. Well, I mean, especially Dylan does sound like a talking tree stump, <laughs> and, and like a lot of other things as well. Um, I mean, the book um, has a lot to do with metamorphosis and Ovid and themes of transformation. And um, I think that Dylan actually has transformed himself so many times as an artist um, that in addition to being someone whom the mother would actually listen to being who she is, um, his spirit to me is, is very much kind of a part of what the book is about. Um, and so, uh, so he does, he haunts me too. Um, and he haunts the book. And I think that you know, if you think of Dylan, who went who went through so many changes of identity in one life, um, but always with a kind of a melancholy undertone, actually through all of his transformations. Um, yeah, I mean, to me, he's sort of a kindred spirit to yeah. what's going on in the book. So the sarcastic tree stump is really a uh, a compliment. Yeah, good. good. <laughs> I got it. I got it. Uh, what would you listen to while you were writing the book? Or, or nothing at all? Yeah. Um, well, what I like to do is to turn the radio on, um, but to almost to where you can't actually hear it. It's <laughs> like the it's like a whistle that only a dog can hear. You, and so it's a kind of a subliminal mumble. That's what I listen to. I, I'm sorry, that's a very banal answer, but that's what I Well, no, no. I mean, it's, a, you know, some people listen to music up loud when they write. I mean, other ways, uh, some people, you know, like to go to go to a, yeah. a noisy place and to shut out the sound and help them focus. Yeah. I mean, others, I mean, that's kind of like a little white noise in the background. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's like white noise. Um, although I would say that in addition to Dylan, um, the music that most kind of approximated how I felt about Gabriel and who he was would be someone like Antony and the Johnsons, who has a very strange and beautiful sound. Um, and so I would listen to that after I was done. Anthony and the Johnsons. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a uh, uh, Gabriel uh, is is uh, at some point diagnosed with with kind of a, a transformative uh, disease that's described as 
a lazy cancer. Is there such a thing, or is this your... uh... No, no, I didn't make that up. There is such a thing as a lazy cancer, and I've known one or two people who have it. Um, And for any doctors who are listening, let me just apologize in advance for mangling it. But a lazy cancer, as I understand it, is this kind of chronic condition. It usually strikes people actually who are in their sort of 60s or 70s, but it's kind of this thing that's sort of lurking in you all. It's like mortality itself. It's lurking all the time, um, and it can make you very sick, but it's not going to kill you right away. Um, And so I was interested in that as something for a character to get because, among other things, it would make you very aware of your own possible impending death in a way that people Gabriel's age, he's about 37, 38, don't usually think about. So yeah, it exists. But he's had to have a lot to think about. I mean, his, his father has left. It, it, it sort of really derails him. The family you know, has to go to Florida for a while you know, to manage a motel. The mother is devastated. And, and you know, he has to reinvent himself from a, from a kind of a of a life, and he does it in a variety of self-directed ways. <laughs> well, that would be one word for it. Um, I mean, the way that Gabriel thinks about himself is as an artist, and he, and he builds these these boxes that are sort of like the boxes Joseph Cornell made. Um, and what he's always doing is he's trying to get back, trying to recapture a a profound beauty in his childhood that he feels he has lost, that because of the divorce and having to go to run the motel in Florida, um, that this kind of beautiful, imaginative, wonderful life that he had with his um, mother before they moved has been wrecked. And so he he has all these different means that he wants to get it back, and one of them is art, but the other one actually is crime. And so he he commits sort of escalating crimes as the novel goes on, but always because he's trying to buy back this beautiful thing that he feels has he has been unfairly deprived of. The house that he was yeah. first in. When uh, some of one of one of his crimes, he encounters uh, somebody who. At the same time that he's trying to heal himself and and uh, is going through incantations and ceremonies and 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 rituals, he meets somebody that uh, he'd been stealing from who starts cursing him. I mean, in a very sort of gypsy like way, and this, you know, this transforms him too. Yes, yes. I mean, the person who curses him, he one of his many little sort of semi scams that he does is that he ghost writes for a woman who's um, writing, who's for a long time been writing a series of really potboiler novels or bodice ripper novels, you know, the kinds of things you see, like, you know, um, I don't know, you like, Girls in Trouble, sort of, sort of. I, wasn't there a bodice ripped in this one? Too? No, not. <laughs> <laughs> no, and she's very successful, but but she's quite old at this point and has had some strokes and is no longer actually writing the books herself, which does happen actually. Um, and so it does. Um, so he's been he's been ghostwriting. Have you ever ghostwritten? No, something? no, no. I haven't. I haven't. Um, but um, he's been ghostwriting them for her. Um, so he's ca- taking all this cash under the table from her, which she keeps in little envelopes under her pillow. Um, but he also she lives in this spectacular apartment. So along the way, he sort of helps himself to some of the things in her apartment that he really likes that he doesn't think she'll really notice are gone. And then one day she does notice and and she does curse him um and to some degree her curse has real has real power and it actually is one of the things that makes him flee new york where he's living and run away to mexico because he's so afraid of her of her sort of witch-like 
powers. She is a bit of a witch. And in, and in Mexico, I mean, too, the idea of metaphor, metamorphosis, uh, you know, further, uh, further takes Gabriel into other territory, and, and you take him into other territory as a, as a writer. So uh, talk a bit about uh, Ovid's metamorphosis and what that means for you as a storyteller, how that story you know, formed a scrim through this one, for this one. Yeah, I mean, I should say right away that I have no special knowledge of, of Ovid at all. Um, I picked up Ovid's Metamorphosis and read it about, uh, I guess, six years ago now when I was on vacation somewhere. Um, and honestly, it just simply rocked my world. Um, I'm not a classical scholar. I think I read the Odyssey in high school. That's it. Um, but Ovid is so vivid and so moving and so extraordinary. And the, the metamorphic stories that he wrote are so psychologically powerful um, in addition to in addition to being these sort of amazing metaphors for um, some of them are sort of origin myths and some of them are this is how we got the laurel tree and this is how we got echoes etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, and I thought that that was just an amazing how did we get echoes um, because echo because echo fell in love with narcissus um, narcissus was the very beautiful youth and echo was a was a nymph who was very very much in love with him and um and she would she would call to him and only be able to hear her own sound back um and and i guess i can't remember what happened to her she died some kind of tragic death and be, anyway became an, an echo um so so i began to think about what would a modern day metamorphosis look like um, and one of the things also in Ovid is that sometimes people are subject to metamorphosis as a, as a kind of punishment. Um, you know, you drive the chariot, the sun chariot too high and, you know, or Daedalus and Icarus, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of times um, people metamorphose because they are, they are almost overwhelmed by, by emotions and situations that are too great for them to handle. And then the gods take pity on them and they look down and they change them into something. I mean, um, Laurel, for instance, is, or Daphne, excuse me, is fleeing Apollo, who's trying to sort of sexually assault her. And, and in her grief, she calls out sort of to the gods, help me, help me. And they look down and they change her into a tree, which becomes the Laurel tree. So there's this, there's this idea that when human beings have more than they can bear, that, that nature will kind of open up and change you into something else so that you can, you can stand an intolerable or overwhelming state. And I thought that was just the most beautiful, I just thought that was beautiful. And so I wanted to write a character who'd be put under a lot of pressure and, um, and then would be changed. And Gabriel's sort of imagination for change is a, is a bird. Yeah, I mean, his kind of primary metaphor, and I don't know, familiar, um, it is a bird. And he, once he's diagnosed with the lazy cancer, he, he in his mind, he feels that, um, that he's also being sort of transformed into a bird. And he walks around thinking about that a lot. Um, and in fact, when he goes to Mexico, he does get to wear, he joins this kind of insane commune and he gets to wear these big, real big white wings and, and sit in a tree. And I think that, I mean, I've never had a cancer, but um, I think that if you're diagnosed with some kind of very, uh, you know, um, challenging illness, you've, I would imagine that you do feel that you have almost changed into another being. Well, you make uh, you you have a, a, a storyline involving 
a, a potential blood transfusion, um, which in a way is a kind of a metamorphosis. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are metamorphoses that happen every day. Um, you know, I mean, in this country, this is you know, such a banal example, but, you know, we're sort of fascinated by plastic surgery that can make you over into something else or really dramatic weight loss or, um, I don't know, gender reassignment surgery. I mean, there are these these metamorphic states that happen all the time. Um, I mean, aging itself is a metamorphosis. Pregnancy and birth is a metamorphosis. Um, you know, we, we don't think about things in those terms so much as modern people, but it really is all around us all the time. Um, and it's a very sort of useful and I think beautiful and compassionate way to, to think about what can happen to human beings. An inauguration is a metamorphosis. Oh, oh my God! This one really is. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. The the uh, there's a there's an element to there, there's a a lump on on uh, Gabriel's thigh. Uh, an egg comes out of it. He hatches yeah. an egg. Yeah. Uh, uh, where where did the idea of a lump on a thigh come from? In an egg. Well, I mean, obviously, it has um, it it sort of echoes against uh, uh, Zeus and Athena, who is she was born out of his. I hope I'm not getting this wrong. Um, no, no the re I, okay, so that was the idea. What's interesting is, is that, yes, that's the story, right. but it turns out there was a very prudish Oxford scholar, apparently, yeah. who did not want to translate the word penis from the Greek into English, and so it became the thigh. Really? Yeah. <laughs> that's hilarious, because it may... <laughs> <laughs> but it makes so much more sense out of the penis, right? I mean, it makes, I mean, just, just in so many ways, that makes, that makes so much more sense. That's fascinating. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was part of that sort of Victorian balderization of the classics. I know, but it's so funny that you just move it over to the thigh. It's like, oh, okay, it's just over there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah Athena sprung from Zeus's thigh. Right? Yeah. How'd that happen? <laughs> right. Well, you sort of think about, right, how did that happen? Yeah. Um, um, that was a literary metamorphosis that the guy made on his own. <laughs> That's great. That's fabulous. Um, um, yeah, so I mean, I was thinking about that, but also um, the, the, the thing that comes out of his thigh does have its roots in a real thing, which is called a lipoma. There are little, there are little benign right. growths that, that you can get that, um, that would feel like that and sort of look like that. And I wanted the thing that comes out of him to also have a sort of a real world that's something that could conceivably happen, that it's both an egg and maybe just a real um, little growth at the same, at the same time. Uh, you say that cancer is a, is a fractal, memory is a fractal, the house on Pineapple Street was a fractal, infinitely receding in my dreams to smaller and smaller versions of itself until it was the size of a matchbox with teensy-weensy people inside, and then it got smaller than that until I couldn't see it anymore, no matter how hard I peered. You seem to be drawn to science metaphors. I know, I know not one thing about science. Oh. <laughs> um, but um, his, his sister, he has this very kind of imaginative and wild sister, and she has become um, an artist herself, a real artist who works, in, who works in fractal art, which is a real thing. There are people who work in fractal art. And fractals are these, like a snowflake is a fractal. Um, they're things that repeat down to the teeniest, teeniest element of themselves. And the reason that I was interested 
interested in fractal art, about which I also knew not very much at all before I wrote this book, um, is that it's a it's a new media form of art. I mean, you make it on the computer, um, and so it itself has a kind of a transformative property um, on many levels, um, and also that it's just that it's just lovely and odd, um, and so I was I was very very interested in that. Um, and also I think that, you know, it's, it's like you think of things like the homunculus, right? The idea that, that little people lived inside the, right? That um, it's, an, it's a much more archaic way of thinking about the world um, than the way that we think about it now. And I was interested in that too. Well, so writing this book was a metamorphosis for you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I know about fractals and no, yeah. Joseph Cornell boxes and, yeah. and, and, yeah. and uh, the creation of a city out of paper tubes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I have to actually. Um, my my partner's sister, um, she and her family actually do that. I have to. I have to sort of um, say that they they make this this amazing. She and the husband and the kids make this amazing city every Christmas out of out of the things that I say that they make it out of in the book: wrapping paper and cardboard towel tubes. And the first time that I saw this, I was just amazed. I mean, they actually are a science family and they know tons about science and they also they also know how to do things like make little elevators out of little pieces of cardboard that actually have pulleys that actually go up and down in the buildings that they've made out of paper towel tubes. I was just astonished by this. I can't even I can barely draw like a horse and they could make this entire thing um and to me it seemed like such a gorgeous image of a kind of an enchanted childhood world where so much was possible and that all of these incredible things could be made out of, you know, what's basically sort of trash. Um, and, and I thought that that was just a, a, riveting, a, a riveting thing to do. Uh, as, a, uh, as a young person, were, were you a writer? Yeah, um, I wrote my first play when I was um, nine. Um, it was the school play. And um, they, had, they, you know, they asked for like, um, which kid wants to write the play? And so I raised my hand, and I have a very clear memory of sitting at my little, my little desk in my little room and writing this play, which kind of owed a lot to um, Nancy Drew and probably the Brady Bunch, sort of combined. Um, and I thought it was a fantastic play. <laughs> really, it was like the best thing that had ever happened to me. Um, and then. After that, maybe two years after that, I wrote a um, six-page novel that I also thought was really completely great. <laughs> um, and it just always, it, it's a funny thing, you know, why is it that as children we, we attach to something, to one thing or another thing? Some kids attach to animals or some kids attach to cars or to acrobatics. Um, and, and for me, just for forever, um, that feeling of, you know, putting the words down on pencil, on lined paper was, was spectacular. Um, so yeah, always. Yeah. Uh, the Sky Below is the title of, of the novel. Mm -hmm. Was that your first choice? Is it, was it, yeah. and, and how would you sort of describe that to people who go, the what's sky that? below, what's <laughs> yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I like the sky below because to me that was from sort of the gods' point of view, right? That the gods sort of sit above the sky and they look down at the sky, at the sky below. Um, and also because Gabriel kind of gets turned upside down as a person and spiritually by what happens to him, um, it's as if for him over the course of this book, 
the sky does come to be underneath him. Um, things happen to him that he doesn't understand, that are too big for him, that turn his way of thinking upside down. And are you the god then <laughs> in, this, in, this, in, this, in this world of the book? <laughs> no, I'm more like the hapless mortal sort of, sort of, you know, bouncing around trying to figure it out. No, I don't feel like the god. Moving the characters around <laughs> and changing their fates. Yeah. and. Deciding what they'll wear, no. who they'll sleep with. No, and, no, I wish, I wish, I wish. <laughs> I don't. More like chasing them around, trying to figure out what the hell they're doing and and what is you know what is going on. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so they're they're kids writing books. They all want to write books nowadays. The publishing industry is in turmoil. Uh, do they speak to you with anxiety about uh, how to get published, or do they just want to focus on their art? Are they buying books themselves, or not reading themselves? Yeah. All good questions. Um, yes, they do speak to me with anxiety, and um, and they're right to be anxious right now. I mean, um, if you read the papers, the publishing industry, you know, talk about a state of transformation. It basically melted down this fall, um, and I think that between the sort of twin forces of um, new media coming in and really replacing print in many ways, and then a global economic collapse means that publishing, like anything else, is, try is trying to figure out how to reinvent itself. And if you walk around and talk to everyone, from writers to booksellers to publishers to editors to authors, everyone is saying, what will happen next? What will books look like? Will everything be on Kindle? Um, what, what, is going to, what is going to happen? And no one, no one really knows. I mean, one of the things that I find very interesting and also very heartening is that if you also read a lot of the coverage, um, what you see is that people aren't tired of reading. People actually are reading. There was an article in the paper just last week saying that fiction readership is up. And even anecdotally, people are reading a lot. Um, and people are certainly also very much wanting to continue to write. What is clearly changing is the distribution system and the way, the form that these, that these objects that we call books what form that's going to take. And also what's really clear, and I have no um, solution for this, is that people don't want to pay for books in the same way that they have. Um, they're used to downloading songs for, you know, a dollar, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so that it's very hard for people to figure out now what kind of form can we make that people will pay for. Um, my students do read. They read they read quite a bit and, and voraciously, and they write fervently and passionately, and they read, they read actually more widely than, than you might expect. Um, so what I, I guess what I cling to is um, that people very, very much want to hear the written, read the written word and hear the written word, and they're just trying to figure out what it's going to look like. So the publishing industry calls up to the gods and yes, says, yes, help, yes. help, yes. what do they get changed into? I know, I know. This is the, you know, this is the right. billion dollar question. Um, the publishing industry would, would love to be turned into a river or a tree. Get, get this guy Ovid on the case. <laughs> <laughs> Ovid would figure, I mean, Ovid was such a, a genius. Um, he would definitely figure out exactly the right form that would um, that would both express the crisis and solve it. So yeah, if he's listening, I think he should really come and help us out. The novel is called The Sky Below by Stacy Durasma, also author of Team. Thank you very much for being here on West Coast Live. Pleasure to meet you. Thank you.
This is Sedge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.